I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Tertius vero vocabatur ludoicus, qui erat rex super aquitanium. Dui vivat pater, eorum cum es feliciter, et etiliter instribat eos liberalibus, disciplinus et mundanis legibus. Quote from The Life of Emperor Louis, by an anonymous author usually referred to as The Astronomer. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Hello and welcome. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation, Episode 11, The Decline and Fall of the Holy Roman Empire. Well, here I am, back in my old digs in the office. I would say things are getting back to normal, but, you know, baby. Moving on. In our story, we have covered a lot of ground. We've looked at Iberia, Greater France, the British Isles, Scandinavia, Eastern Europe, and the Balkans. In the process, we have traced something of a spiral around the core areas of Central Europe, what we would now call Germany and its environs. The last part of Europe that we have to visit before we reach what will be the core region of our story is Italy, but as it happens, the stories of Italy and Central Europe are inextricably linked. The thing that links them is the politics of a political entity known as the Holy Roman Empire. That name conveys a lot of ideas, but if I can boil it down to two images, one is that of Charlemagne being crowned emperor by the Pope and serving as the archetypal Germanic warrior king. The other is the broken-down laughingstock of Europe, the confederation of bickering German states put out of its misery by Napoleon, but not really eliminated from the map until Bismarck, another sort of modern warrior king. The link to Italy may not be clear. Most of us have an image of Italy that can also be boiled down to two images, that of the Roman Empire in all its glory, and then many centuries later, the Italian Renaissance. Those of us who are interested in history can probably fill in some of the gaps in between these four images, but even to the most studied amateur historian, these gaps are some of the most persistent in European history. Filling in these gaps will be the work of the next few episodes, episodes that will be interspersing the political story that I will be beginning today with the final few walking tour episodes and finding a crescendo a few episodes down the line in an event called Actually, that would be telling, but trust me, it's going to be fantastic. As for today, I'm going to be starting with the story of the end of the Empire of Charlemagne. 
the story is primarily going to be one about dynastic infighting. And as is often the case in such disputes, this means that there are going to be a lot of important characters that all have the same name. I apologize in advance if this is confusing, but try to focus on the larger themes of the narrative and you should be okay. This may all end up sounding like a traditional history lecture, which I think we all agree the reason we listen to history podcasts is to not have to listen to traditional history lectures, but there's going to be tons of names and dates. If you don't remember that Louis the Pious took the throne in 1814, is that going to be a problem? No, it's not. The dates are there to help keep things in order, but if you just remember that Louis the Pious had a lot of rebellions to deal with, you will have gotten the main point of the story. A silver lining to all this is that the chroniclers really didn't like most of the people we're going to be talking about, and so they ended up with some pretty awesome regnal names. Like Louis the Stammerer, or Charles the Bald. Now in case you don't know, a regnal name is a name picked after a person's death to differentiate them from other people who had the same name. So while his parents called him Alexander, the Great was his regnal name, and it was picked after his death by historians. To me, half the fun of studying history is listening to uh, staid, civilized old men deliver very pithy and witty put-downs. So this period, with its plethora of less-than-stellar kings, is kind of like Christmas for me. Let's get to it, shall we? Our story begins with the death of Charlemagne. As we've discussed in episode 6, the Frankish kingdom had been expanding for generations, and by Charlemagne's crowning in 768, it already firmly embraced the core regions of modern France and Germany. The area in between were always a bit restive, particularly the Burgundian region, which we discussed back in episode 3, and which was settled by a different Germanic people from the Franks, the Burgundians as you might expect. The area of the south of Greater France, with its strong Mediterranean commercial contacts, were also pretty reluctant to join this Frankish enterprise. As of 768, Italy had also not yet been conquered by the Franks, and was ruled by a Germanic people known as the Lombards. Under Charlemagne, these areas, and many others besides, would be brought within the Frankish kingdom. To the north, Charlemagne had conquered the Frisian kingdom, which was a kingdom of merchants and traders who had patrolled the North Sea. In their absence, the warriors and traders from the Baltic began to move west and probe around for economic opportunities. The first Viking raid on the Frankish Empire was in 799, and Charlemagne responded by essentially fortifying the coastline. This was the last raid until the death of Charlemagne, but we should recognize that the Vikings were there as traders and had extensive contact within the empire built up during this trade over the next several decades. To the east, and as we discussed last episode, Charlemagne's warriors had helped grind down the Avar Khanate. Unbeknownst to Charlemagne, further from the east, the Onagurs were starting to move into the Carpathian Mountains. To the west, Charlemagne's empire had expanded into the Iberian Peninsula, up to the Ebro River, which we talked about way back in episode 3. To the south was the Mediterranean. Now, Charlemagne's empire was not very maritime in nature, and so Charlemagne didn't do much with the sea. But to the south, most of the islands in the Mediterranean were held by the Byzantine Empire, with the exception of North Africa, which was held by the powers of Islam. As we saw in episode 6, the Franks had made the church a key component of their domestic policy. Converting to Catholicism gave the Germanic foreigners something in common with their new Latinate subjects, and brought the church hierarchy within the power structure of the kingdom. This was important, as during the breakup of the Roman Empire, loyalties devolved to local power structures, even as the municipal governments dissolved. 
The last legitimate office holders left in the rubble were often the bishops, and so the bishops became the official representatives of the subject Roman populations. Bringing these men within the Frankish administration provided access to literate, somewhat educated men with influence and contacts in the local populace. When this all became formal is not totally clear, but by the time Charlemagne was securely on the throne, the Frankish kingdom had developed something of an official ideology. The Franks were not some might-makes-right barbarians. They were friends of the church, and sought to create order out of the chaos they had found. The most Christian kings of the Franks would seek out injustice and correct it with good laws that would protect the weak and help the church in its mission. The high point of this ideology came in 774, when the Pope, finding himself threatened by those heretical Lombard savages, pleaded for the Frankish king's aid. Charlemagne heroically charged in, righted wrongs, and protected the Pope from those mean bearded men. As you have probably guessed, there's more to this story than the popular narrative might suggest, but that will have to wait till next time. The key point here is that the Pope crowned Charlemagne Emperor due to his aid in crushing the Lombards, and so, according to official Frankish ideology, the imperial crown was linked to the ability to protect the Pope, and thus to the Italian possessions of the Empire. So that's the official ideology, but of course, empires aren't governed by ideology alone. As we touched on in episode 6, the socioeconomic structure of the Frankish Empire was one on the cusp of feudalism, but not quite there yet. The emperor appointed representatives to govern regions that could range in size from what we might call a county to something the size of half of modern France. These men had no personal claim to the land as their position was not hereditary and they could be removed by the emperor at will, but within their territory they held total control over the military and had the same legal powers as the emperor, legal powers that included taxation, which gave them the ability to support the military. Essentially, these men had all the executive power of independent kingdoms, except that they had to conform to the laws and foreign policy of the emperor, lest they be removed from their jobs. Much of this system derived from Roman and Germanic precedents, and many of its members may have been of mixed background, but by the time of Charlemagne the vast majority of the aristocracy of the empire would have considered themselves part of a Frankish warrior culture. As one might expect, giving the leaders of the component parts of your empire essentially dictatorial powers has some downsides. The Frankish Empire had an interest in the well-being of the peasantry because at this stage they were an important part of the military. Numerous laws have been preserved where the emperor is seeking to correct abuses of the peasantry with the explicit purpose of preserving their ability to serve in the military. Unfortunately, control of the local military had a way of convincing the legal system to be flexible, which meant that even under Charlemagne, abuses of the poor were very common. Charlemagne attempted to control the situation by counterbalancing the nobility with the church hierarchy and sending out messengers to essentially spy on his governors. But as often as not, these efforts simply tripled the number of people trying to extract economic resources from the peasantry. Still, the system was quite an achievement under the circumstances, and during his lifetime it provided security and peace for the majority of the empire's residents. If not yet a system fully formed, it was a system, and it was a marked improvement on bands of hairy Germans plundering their way around the countryside without challenge. Even if the exactions of the nobility still felt like robbery, it was a marked improvement on getting stabbed and having your wife sold into slavery. At the center of it all was Charlemagne, whose energy and devotion to education won over the chroniclers of his day. The fact that he paid most of them didn't hurt, but the man would go on to become a semi-legendary figure in Europe. Even into modern times, there's a certain amount of hero worship about the man, 
and it's hard not to fall into that. His reign comes off as a series of successes. He more than doubled the size of his kingdom, he was almost always successful militarily, the exception makes this awesome tragic poem, and he re-established the Roman Empire, which is nothing. We even have this whole body of laws that he left behind, and most of them seem to make sense. This is usually the place where a podcaster would want to gravely balance Charlemagne's mistakes with his successes, to create a more fleshed out picture of the man. But we're actually not here to talk about Charlemagne. We're here to bury him. Charlemagne died in 814, and like the legendary king he was, his succession plan was pretty much rock solid, or as close to that as you could get in a dictatorial monarchy. Charlemagne had had many sons, and he made sure all were well-educated and given land and responsibility as soon as they were capable of exercising it. His three eldest sons died, but the fourth one managed to survive, and in 814 this Louis, called the Pious by historians, was by all accounts everything an elderly conqueror of the known world could hope for in a son. A product of the court schools, Louis was pious and well-spoken and educated, but also an able commander. He'd been given responsibility early, and had already won several battles by the time he took the throne. He was popular amongst his nobility and his courtiers, and he was handsome to boot. In short, someone alive at the time would probably have said putting Louis on the throne was yet another thing that Charlemagne did right, and by all accounts his subjects looked forward to their new king's reign with nothing but optimism. The traditional story, set down to us by the official church chroniclers, is that things started to go wrong in 817. The story goes that Louis and his followers were crossing a footbridge and it collapsed shortly after Louis got off it, killing several courtiers. This near-death experience drove Louis to becoming even more pious, which began to alienate his more traditional and warlike Frankish nobles. Apart from making more concerted efforts to get right with God, the main reaction of Louis the Pious to his near-death experience was to attempt to see to his succession. The succession plan that Louis the Pious constructed was that Lothair, the eldest, would rule as co-emperor with his father and personally rule the central half of the empire. Pepin, the middle child, would rule a strip of land along the western border of the empire, while the youngest, known to history as Louis the German, would rule a strip along the eastern border. And so, with his succession in place, Louis the Pious set about ruling the empire in conjunction with his sons. This arrangement seems to have worked for some time, though Louis and his sons set about doing all the things that Frankish kings and emperors were expected to do, dealing with various internal and external threats, including Viking raids in Frisia, Aquitaine, and Flanders. But in 829, the tranquility of this arrangement was upset when Louis the Pious had a fourth son by his second wife. This wife, Judith, was probably a political marriage to cement Frankish control over the Burgundian territories, as she came from the most important Burgundian noble family, the House of Welf. Remember that name. The chroniclers say that Louis loved Judith to excess, and therefore was overly doting on his son. This sounds suspiciously like the story of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, but these are the sources we have. At any rate, having a new son to provide for, Louis tried to set up this son, named Charles the Bald to history, with some land. Now Lothair was not a bad guy. He was totally in favor of giving some land to his new little brother, and even encouraged Judith to ask Louis to make the grant. But when the imperial degree was sent out, Lothair found that baby Charles had been given something like a quarter of Lothair's land, and no one else's. Lothair's reaction is often described as a revolt, but it was really more like a palace coup. Lothair started gathering other people disgruntled with the way Louis the Pious was running things, and 
soon made such a nuisance of himself that he was banished to Italy. Uh, Lothair's name was stripped from official court documents, and his role in court was filled by Bernard of Barcelona, a duke of the empire's Spanish territories, and a particular favorite of Judith. The two were so close, in fact, that rumors of an affair began to circulate. Things kind of boiled over when Louis the Pious called a massive army to meet him in the city of Aix on Maundy Thursday, with the stated purpose of putting down a minor revolt in the Breton Peninsula. Now, for those of you who are not up on the Catholic religious calendar, Maundy Thursday is during the season of Lent, a time for solemn reflection and religiousness in the Catholic tradition. Calling the army together was perceived as blasphemous by the nobility, which was apparently the last straw. Rather than show up for the muster, many of the nobles mutinied, declared that the sons of Louis should lead them in revolt. Around this time, Bernard found it convenient to flee to Barcelona, and Judith fled to a monastery. A diet met, organized by the angry nobility that reinstated Lothair as co-regent, and called him back to court. Louis the Pious was placed in a liberal retirement. Although he was still technically emperor, he was not really in control of any decisions. Instead, he was surrounded by monks in the pay of Lothair, who were supposed to keep him busy with religious matters. Judith was dragged out of her monastery, and a trial was scheduled to try her for adultery. Now, the nobility had been upset with Louis for more than poorly timed military campaigns and the supposed affairs of his wife. These other issues didn't go away just because Lothair was now in charge instead of Louis. And having to deal with his brothers scheming for more land did not make Lothair's job any easier. Apparently, he didn't do too good a job of it. Furthermore, the church hierarchy was really big on legitimacy, and were huge fans of the Carolingian monarchy. So soon enough, the very monks that Lothair had hired were running messages to his brothers that the nobility were unhappy with Lothair, and that their father might be willing to trade land for aid in returning him to power. So soon enough, Pepin and Louis the German took their chance, switched allegiances to Louis the Pious, and that was more or less that. Lothair was easily crushed, captured, and exiled in disgrace to the Kingdom of Italy, the name given to the former Lombard territory south of the Alps. The entire rest of the empire was split evenly between Pepin and Louis the German. The diet that had been convened to try Judith was suddenly gravely concerned that her honor not be besmirched. At the crescendo of the trial, the Diet was subject to the spectacle of a newly courageous Bernard offering to undergo trial by combat with anyone who wished to repeat the charges that he had slept with Judith. No one took him up on the offer, and Judith was cleared. And so by 8.30, everything kind of returned to normal. Louis the Pious was back on the throne, Pepin and Louis the German were now his right-hand uh, men, I guess, and Lothair was down in Italy, sulkily scheming with the Pope. Two years later, Pepin started a revolt after apparently being lectured one too many times by his father for his lax morals. Louis the German joined his brother, because Dad really was getting insufferable, at which point Louis the Pious promised the whole realm to Lothair, the son he had just disgraced, if he would come help out. Now, Lothair and his new buddy the Pope went north with an army and the declared intention of reconciling the father with the brothers. After gravely considering whether to side with his scheming brothers in return for the emperorship, or to side with his father, who had now repeatedly humiliated him, Lothair and his friend the Pope sided with the brothers, leaving Louis the Pious in command of Jack Diddley. With the men in control of the three largest portions of the empire, and the church all against him, Louis the Pious saw his armies melt away and was forced to abdicate. According to the chroniclers, 
Lothair and Pepin really rubbed it in their dad's face, forcing him to repeatedly confess to a long list of crimes committed since taking the throne, and admitting that all of the Empire's problems were his fault. As the humiliations of the son of Charlemagne wore on, increasingly orchestrated solely by Lothair, the nobility of the Empire, who were mostly relatives, apparently began to have second thoughts about a guy who would do this to his own father. Incidentally, Lothair's brothers may have begun to have second thoughts about the amount of power Lothair now had. Apparently convinced by Judith, and a number of the Frankish uncles that things had gotten out of hand, Louis the German surprised Lothair when he took to the field with a very large army of Germans and threatened to get between Lothair and his Italian home base. Lothair fled home, where his army was decimated by the plague, ending the civil war. Peace secured, Louis the Pious pardoned everyone and returned their lands in 835, because water under the bridge. What's well, a little war between family? Sure, lots of people died in battle, and a bunch of people were killed by the plague, and oh, incidentally, during this embarrassing little family dust-up, the Vikings had more or less completely conquered Frisia, sacked Antwerp and Nimogen, and plundered their way up the entirety of the Rhine River. But whatever. F family. Two years later, in 837, Louis the Pious again started to worry about the future of his son Charles the Bald. Having learned not to take land from Lothair, he gave Charles some land from Louis the German's territory. You know, Louis the German, the one brother who'd been convinced to be a good boy and help his father out and get back his throne. That's the one who lost land. Just to put icing on the cake, when Pepin died a few years later, Louis the Pious put Charles the Bald in charge of the entirety of Western Francia as well, ignoring the nobility of the region who had preferred Pepin's son. Oh, and Dorstad had been plundered four times. Louis the Pious was undoubtedly shocked when Louis the German and the majority of the nobility of Western Francia rose in another civil war. Lothair, remember Lothair? Well, Lothair declared for his father this time, which is actually a bit of a shock. The two stole a quick march into Germany with a huge army and drove Louis the German out of the empire before he could get his forces together. The two had therefore resecured the realm, but then in 840, Louis the Pious died. He was 62 years old and had ruled the empire for 27 years. Vikings were now actively ravaging the northern shore, while Saracens raided the Mediterranean with near impunity. The empire was awash with famine and plague, and the administrative boundaries of the empire had been shifted around so much that no one knew which end was up. Of course, the only rational response to this problematic situation for the descendants of Louis the Pious was to start another civil war. Lothair declared that he was the sole emperor of all the land, and his surviving brothers declared against him. Meanwhile, the Vikings raided the Francia region of Germany. With Charles the Bald combining forces with the newly resurgent Louis the German, Lothair's forces were crushed in two quick battles. Lothair was captured, and a treaty written between the brothers called the Treaty of Verdun, that gave Charles the western half of the empire, Louis the eastern half, while Lothair got a thin strip of land running from the Low Countries in the north to Italy in the south, but including Burgundy and Provence. This strip was, of course, ludicrously indefensible, militarily or socially or what have you, but he got to call himself Emperor and King of Italy, so that's not nothing. The realm was effectively split in three, a fact that the Vikings would have learned about through their trade connections. And they seem to have just kind of let loose on the Frankish Empire. Between 843, the date of the signing of the Treaty of Verdun, and 855, they raided at Nantes, Calouse, Hamburg, Paris, Bordeaux, Mona, St. Martin, 
tours and a number of various Mediterranean isles with various loyalties to the Frankish Empire. Possibly just as a middle finger to posterity, Lothair died in 855, shortly after the signing of the Treaty of Verdun, and split his already ridiculously indefensible kingdom three ways, giving the Italian portion, along with the imperial title, to his eldest son, Louis the Younger. The borderlands along the Rhine went to Lothair II, while the kingdom of Burgundy and Provence went to Charles of Provence. Charles of Provence never left a suspiciously claustrophobic regency, before he died in 863 with no children, and his land went to Lothair II. Lothair II died in 869, also without children, and his kingdom was intended to go to Louis the Younger. Now, Louis was a smart, energetic, and capable king, which meant that when his brother died at the age of just 34, he was not waiting around, he was in southern Italy doing smart, energetic, capable king things. In his absence, Charles the Bald and Louis the Charmin swept in and divided up the territory. Now, Charles the Bald was that son of Judith the Welf, and he himself was also a pretty energetic and forceful king, but who achieved the unenviable stigma of being an abject failure. He was despised by the nobility, who early on ejected him from the kingdom in uh, 858 in favor of Louis the German. He took shelter with his mother's clan, the Welfs of Burgundy, uh, and then returned to his kingdom when the bishops refused to crown Louis the German as king. Once firmly in control, he repeatedly tried to invade his nephew's kingdoms in Middle Francia, only to fail miserably. Even after they died and he was able to split the kingdoms with Louis the German, it was kind of a failure. He had actually tried to take the entire area north of the Alps up to the Rhine, but was decisively defeated in battle by Louis the German. Between 855 and 870, the Vikings had raided Saint-Benoît, Fleury, Poitiers, Bourges, Orléans, Angers, Altclude, and Paris uh, three times. The Franks had also reconquered Frisia, which meant that by this point it was completely prostrate to Viking raids, which just came again and again and again. The Saracens had begun raiding southern France, and by 870 had actually taken over a section of coast near where the Alps come down to the sea, and from there they sent mounted raiding parties into the Alps to attack pilgrims in the passes. Similar raids took place all over the western coast of Italy. It's all a bit unfair to blame Charles the Bald for all of this. He was a well-educated man for his time, and an energetic and forceful king, as I've said. Some of his policies, like the expansion of the cavalry arm of the Frankish military, paid almost immediate dividends. Others, like building fortified bridges on the larger French rivers, would aid in the defeat of the Vikings, but the credit would go to local commanders. Charles the Bald was always off chasing the next opportunity to take land from a relative. His big break came in 875, with the death of Emperor Louis the Younger, the competent and energetic king of northern Italy and the holder of the titular emperorship of the Franks. Of course, Louis the Younger had, like all his brothers, died without a son, but he had named Carloman, son of Louis the German, to be his heir. Charles the Bald thus had no claim to the kingdom, but he apparently spent all his time on the borders of his kingdom with his armies just waiting for relatives to die, so before anyone knew what was happening, Charles was in Italy getting crowned emperor by the Pope. Louis the German was understandably unhappy about this, and took his frustrations out by sending his entire army into western Francia, where they angrily devastated the countryside. Of course, Charles the Bald's army was in Italy, so Louis had a grand old time burning and pillaging all of the Frankish peasants that they were supposedly fighting to rule. Charles the Bald hurried back north, and the stalemate resumed, 
partly because Carloman, the eldest son of Louis the German, had taken up the family tradition of staging uprisings against his father. He had a more limited set of objectives than his own father had had back in his day. Instead of trying to oust Louis the German, Carloman merely secured his own rule in Bavaria, and then began forcing his father to hand over large chunks of land to Carloman's brothers, Louis the German's sons. So just as the lands of Louis the Pious ended up being split into Western, Eastern, and Middle Francia, now Eastern Francia itself was split into three big chunks, with Louis the German remaining as the titular overlord. When Louis the German died in 876, these three brothers were already well-placed to come together and defeat Charles the Bald's inevitable attempt to assume control. The final act of Charles the Bald after this invasion was one of service to the church. Southern and central, Italy was being ravaged by Saracen raids, and the Pope had been pleading with Charles to bring down an army to deal with the situation for years. As the King of Italy, that was sort of his duty. Charles did so in 877, but neither his Frankish nor his Italian nobles were really willing to put much energy into the enterprise. Sensing an opportunity, Carloman crossed the Alps behind Charles. Charles fled back to western Francia, as he had no army to oppose Carloman with, and he died in the mountain passes. With his passing, the last of the sons of Louis the Pious, son of Charlemagne, had died. Western Francia was now ruled by Louis the Stammerer, who has been described as sweet and simple by historians. He died only two years later in 879, oddly enough during a successful campaign against the Vikings, which makes you think that someone else was probably running the army. Eastern Francia was ruled by the three sons of Louis the German in cooperation, with Carloman, the eldest, as the leader and interrogator of the title of emperor, which he had taken from Charles the Bald along with Italy. But Carloman suffered a stroke in 879, leaving another Louis on the throne. At this point, even the chroniclers have run out of things to call the Louis, and so they called him Louis the Younger, even though we just had a Louis the Younger. But at any rate, this Louis didn't last long. He died two years later in 882, whereupon the youngest brother, known as Charles the Fat, took over the whole of Eastern Francia. So, Charles the Fat, remember that. Turning back to the West, the children of Louis the Stammerer seem to have been competent enough, but were beset by legitimacy issues. The nobility of the kingdom had rejected them, been talked off the ledge by bishops, and accepted the co-rule of the two kings. But then the Duke of Provence apparently got to the party late, stormed in, announced that he at least was still in revolt, and went home. The brother kings joined forces with the Pope, and eventually the brother kings of Eastern Francia joined in as well. So the whole gang was back together, and they invaded Provence, took most of it, but failed in the siege of the capital. They withdrew to lick their wounds, but before another attempt could be made, the elder son, named Louis, of course, died, leaving everything to the younger son, another Carloman. Feel free to flip a table in rage at the name issue. I, for one, won't judge you, but fear not. Carloman died in 882 as well, and he also left everything to Charles the Fat. Before we move on to the reign of Charles the Fat, I have two things to note. First is the amusing little story that the Louis that just died had died while had died from falling from his horse during, and I quote, the pursuit of a girl with amorous intentions. The second thing is that between 870 and 882, there were so many interactions between the Vikings and the Franks that it's hard to keep track of them all. In 870, the Vikings basically just conquered Frisia outright, and were acknowledged as the rightful rulers by the Eastern and Western Franks. 
from Frisia, Vikings raided Manstricht, Liege, Davilot, Prum, Cologne, and Koblenz. Louis the Younger, the German one, fought a successful battle near Charleroi, uh, but his only living son was killed in the battle, which is why Eastern Francia ended up going to Charles the Fat. And finally, in 881, the elder son of Louis the Stammerer beat a bunch of Vikings in the Battle of Sarcourt and Vimeux. Southern France was raided by the Saracens again, and they also set up a fortified base just south of Rome. Independence-minded local rulers had also set up independent administrations in the Breton Peninsula, in Burgundy, and Provence. Meanwhile, in Italy, Generation after generation of absentee monarch had seen the sophisticated political administration left by the Roman Empire collapse into almost nothing. As a result, society was in a state of almost complete social collapse. But back to the main narrative. Charles the Fat has thus far been very politically fortunate. For the first time in generations, and defying all odds, the entire aristocracy of the Frankish Empire was now united behind one man. But now he had to deal with all these Viking raids, Saracen fortified camps, uh, and independence-minded local rulers. While it's possible a better man could have dealt with the situation, Charles doesn't come off as inept or lazy. He just seems like a guy whose toolkit wasn't up to the task. He would end up spending his entire reign fighting fires without ever getting to the roots of any problems. An anecdote can show what I mean. In 885, a huge Viking fleet sailed towards Paris, plundering its way through Normandy. The city and its nobility begged for help, and Charles duly arrived with a large army. But it took a long time to gather an army, so by the time Charles showed up, the local defenders had been holding out for most of a year, and had been giving as good as they got. The Vikings were actually in pretty bad shape. So the Parisians are expecting to Charles to charge down from the hills, set the Vikings to flight, and slaughter them as they fled back to their boats. But Charles actually had other problems. Burgundy was in revolt, other Vikings were raiding in the east, and Italy was restive. So rather than waste his army in battle, Charles the Fat paid the Vikings 600 pieces of silver to attack Burgundy instead. He killed two birds with one stone. But the western Francian nobility perceived him as spineless and felt betrayed that they had not received justice for the lands ravaged by the Vikings before the arrival of Charles. Commentators at the time certainly agreed with them, as paying the pagan Vikings to attack Christians seemed like a terrible thing to do. From our more modern perspective, Charles may come off as kind of clever here, but politically speaking, Charles had managed to anger the military, the political administration, and the church in exchange for temporary help with two short-term problems. Due to his use of tactics of this kind, Charles the Fat gained a reputation as a coward. He wasn't particularly known for fighting battles, and indeed the chronicles show him fighting very few, and the battles he did fight were, like as not, ambushes. However, it was in issues of family politics that things got really dangerous. The first issue to come up involved his illegitimate nephew, Arnulf. Now, his nephews, if you'll recall, would have been the children of his brothers. Charles the Fat had been the youngest of three, each of whom had sort of been co-rulers in Eastern Francia. His middle brother Louis's son had died in battle, as we mentioned. His eldest brother, Carloman, only had an illegitimate son, Arnulf. Now, beyond the issue of his illegitimacy, Arnulf was pretty young at the time of his father's stroke, so at the time he wasn't a reasonable candidate for leadership of the family, particularly when there were two younger adult male brothers of Carloman. But he was able to inherit his father's lands and become the Duke of Carinthia, an area which is now part of Austria. 
This all made Arnulf a pretty important guy. Even if he wasn't king of the Eastern Franks or anything, he was the largest landowner in Eastern Francia, and he was something akin to the head of the family there. Furthermore, the rule that an illegitimate son couldn't succeed wasn't set in stone, and it was felt by many that he was a good candidate for succession to future kingship or imperial titles. Unfortunately, in 882, the relationship between Charles the Fat and Arnulf went pear-shaped for reasons that were entirely parochial. It seems the Duke of the Pomeranian Marches had died while out on campaign against the Moravians, a Slavic people outside of the empire. A new duke was appointed, but the sons of the previous duke appealed to both the Moravians and to Arnulf that they deserved to inherit their father's possessions. Now, as we've discussed, dukedoms were something like governorships in the Frankish legal system, but we've already started to see that they were being inherited. Obviously, Arnulf had inherited his from his father, even though it was supposed to be an appointive office. Arnulf chose to support the sons and the principle that these areas could be inherited. Charles the Bald, as the emperor, supported his candidate whom he had appointed, supporting the principle that he could appoint things. Charles the Fat's intervention, both military and political, brought the issue to a close, at least overtly, but Arnulf continued an internecine battle against Charles the Fat's candidate, continuing his intervention in Moravian politics, even going so far as to bring in Magyar mercenaries to impose his will on the region. As the conflict between Charles the Fat and Arnulf became more and more bitter and personal, it became time for Charles the Fat to find a different line of succession. This might have been okay if Charles the Fat had been able to produce an heir of his own. But, for whatever reason, Charles the Fat was unable to have children with his legitimate wife. Like most Frankish emperors, though, he had illegitimate children. And he attempted to get one of these, Bernard, legitimized as his successor. In this attempt, he met opposition from the local bishops. He attempted to bring in the Pope on his side, and the Pope seems to have been amenable, but that Pope died on the way. Uh, he tried to get the next Pope on board, but that Pope ended up finding other things he needed to do. Charles the Fat never did manage to get Bernard legitimized, and in the process he very much annoyed the local clergy. Meanwhile, the Empire was in flames, as Viking raids and Saracen raids were paid off more often than they were defeated, leading to more Viking raids and more Saracen raids. Plagues and famines tore over the countryside, and law and order broke down, particularly in Italy, which he seems to have barely set foot in. Then, on the 11th of November in 887, Charles the Fat called a diet to be held in Frankfurt, in eastern Francia. This let everybody know where he would be. When he got there, Charles the Fat learned that Arnulf had led an army of rebels to Frankfurt and had pretty much already surrounded him. We're told that when Charles the Fat's supporters heard what was going on, they more or less deserted him to a man, meaning that when Arnulf came to confront his uncle in the Diet Assembly Hall, he led pretty much the entire nobility of Eastern Francia in doing so. At this point, Charles the Fat had been on the throne for six years. The experience had prematurely aged him, and he had become seriously ill. The chroniclers record that Charles the Fat seems to have been happy to have the burden lifted from his shoulders. Relieved of his burden, Charles the Fat was retired to a monastery, where he died six weeks later. I would suspect foul play, but as I said, he was already sick. The chroniclers at the time, at least, have no inkling of foul play in their records. And so in 887, Charles the Fat died. He was 48 years old, and he had been Holy Roman Emperor for six years. With no clear succession plan in place, with no obvious elder legitimate son, and with 
the clan of Charlemagne fragmented into different regions, there was simply no one left to succeed him. He would, as it turns out, be the last emperor of the line of Charlemagne. In the wake of his abdication, there would be other legitimate Carolingian kings, but, and this is key, the empire fragmented into different regions. The story of that fragmentation and what followed will be a story for a later episode. For now, let's recap and reflect on events. So today we saw Louis the Pious, son of Charlemagne, take control of the empire. His son staged three revolts against him, and on his death a civil war broke out. The empire was divided by the Treaty of Verdun into eastern, western, and middle portions. The middle portion was insanely indefensible, but carried the imperial title. It almost immediately broke up, and its remains squabbled over by the eastern and western sides, even as members of the Carolingian clan dropped like flies, and Viking and Saracen raiders nibbled away at the edges of the empire. Eventually, the last man standing was Charles the Fat, who was unable to deal with the empire's problems and was deposed, leading to the empire's breakup, although as we saw with the secession of the Breton Peninsula, Burgundy, and Provence, that breakup was already underway before Charles died. What can we make of all this? First off, I'd like to address some historiographical issues. The period of European history after the death of Charlemagne is one of the most poorly understood because it's just often not explained properly, leading to a lot of misunderstandings. I've actually read in history books that it was Charlemagne that split up the empire amongst his sons, or his grandsons, or whatever. This simply wasn't the case. Charlemagne really comes off as having done his best, with a spooky ability to pick what we would call the most logical course of action despite his times, and culture. It's worth noting how primogeniture was not yet firmly rooted amongst the Franks as an assumed cultural expectation. The Franks viewed any son of a particularly beloved king as equally legitimate in succession. Why be loyal to the elder brother when I like the younger one more? They're all sons of the same guy. And it's also important to note that it's not that the Franks had no sense of legitimate succession. Keep in mind that they were loyal to the clan of Charlemagne for several generations after his death. It's often said that they had no clear idea of how the succession between members of the clan was supposed to happen, but I think it's more fair to say that the concept of how that was supposed to happen was in transition. The role of the church is very important in this, particularly once we get to the era of Charles the Fat and the refusal of the church to recognize his son Bernard. There are actually many scions of the Carolingian house spread around the empire that were not considered for succession because of their illegitimate status. But again, none of this originated from Charlemagne. His succession plan was clear. That would seem to shift the blame to Louis, and a lot of historiographical ink has been spilled on the subject of Louis and his culpability in this whole situation. Chroniclers at the time tended to take the line that Louis was a most Christian man and king, and he was beset by evils that he was too good to deal with. Poor Louis. Historians of the empiricist school in the Victorian era, who were very busy attacking the Middle Ages as being uncivilized and barbaric on the one hand, while simultaneously attacking the Christian theology of the time as being ignorant and backward, tended to take the line that Louis was a good king who was enervated by the ignorant theology of the time. Come on, Louis. Get out there and punch a guy. More modern historians have a tendency to de-emphasize the role that individuals play in events. While Louis's personality may have been important in the political sphere, if revolutions and civil wars broke out, it was because conditions were right for them to break out anyway. To put all my beans on the table, I tend to fall in line with this third approach. Post-structuralist historians have a tendency to even wonder whether many of the events that are recounted happened at all. 
This was, after all, an era where truth was more important than fact, and many of the stories that are recounted tend to sound a little bit like literary tropes. Having kings scared by near-death experiences into being super-religious, becoming unpopular amongst their nobility and dethroned, is something that apparently happened to a number of kings in this era. While we can talk about the culture of the times and the tendency of that to happen, one can also say that the historians that we're getting these stories from may have been drawing from the same well. To a certain extent, we just need to deal with the stories that we have, but it does seem like there's an element of truth in this argument. There seem to be a number of inconsistencies with the personality of Louis, who comes off on one page as a strong, energetic king who's off punching dudes, and then on the next page is a weakling who's annoying all his nobles by being so religious-y. One story element that I found particularly interesting was that of him assembling his army during Holy Week. Isn't Louis supposed to be super religious and annoying everybody with his religiousness? Shouldn't Louis be the one who's offended by the blasphemy of calling out troops on Holy Week? Not the anti-religious nobles, apparently? If you take Louis just in terms of his actions, the campaigns, the executions, the legal maneuvers, he comes off as a pretty reasonable king taking pretty reasonable actions given the circumstances. It's in the interaction between the father and the sons that things become hard to understand. Why would the sons rebel? They'd get the kingdom eventually anyway. And why wouldn't Louis execute them? They keep rebelling! Again, the main narrative that we're presented of Lothair and his interactions with his father tends to seem to me like more of a prodigal son story who kept rebelling again and again, but then finally came to his father's defense only to be stabbed in the back by his land-grubbing younger brothers, which, you know, he had been land-grubbing too, but he'd changed, and then was eaten by the wolves. My own interpretation, and this is just an interpretation, is that the interactions we're seeing are the product of the slow evolution from government titles as mere government titles to owned positions. In Chris Wickham's Early Medieval Italy, Central Power and Local Society, 400 through 1000, he talks about how the Frankish Empire was attempting to support a Roman Empire-style bureaucracy using the new economic system of the times. But, as we've seen in this episode, that gradually evolved into a situation where people felt they had ownership over the land, and they had the ability to enforce that feeling. Indeed, this was an issue that the original Roman Empire faced during its waning years. By the time of the death of Charles the Fat, things were moving very convincingly in the direction where the nobility owned their land and inherited it, and were willing to fight for that right despite its contravention of Frankish legal custom. Other issues undoubtedly played a part. To the political and economic issues we've already discussed, we should probably talk about demographic issues, such as the apparent death without children of so many members of the Frankish aristocracy. The external threat presented by the Vikings and the Saracens definitely had a political role in undermining the value of central government in this story, but for us it also presents an interesting and, dare I say, artistic image of the Carolingian clan fiddling away their empire while the Vikings burned everything. This is hardly an exhaustive list of the possible factors behind the fall of the Frankish Empire. I'm not here to tell you what one thing caused the fall, that's not really how I think. I think everything had a role, and fingering one thing just ignores the trees for the forest. Do you have one to suggest? Check out the Facebook page or the website and submit a comment. For today, the important thing is seeing the way that the Carolingian Empire split up among the Carolingian clans, until eventually there weren't any Carolingians left. That segues us nicely into a more detailed look 
at Italy in the next episode, as we resume the walking tour with Italy and the islands. It's going to be a really great episode, and I can't wait to bring it to you. I've been champing at the bit. This next couple of episodes are all episodes that I'm super excited about. So, as always, thanks to Nautasurf. Until next time, bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.